Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. I think... People are starting to become more aware of the disease, which is really cool. You know, it'd be nice to know that healthcare professionals are really aware of what ME is, what people go through. Yeah, I think just seeing more and more research come out would be really cool. It'd be really awesome to know what actually causes ME and then maybe that would create a pathway to try and find some way to help. Maybe not cure it, but help with the symptoms would be really awesome, but... I mean, science is difficult, the body is confusing, so I know that could take a while, but I hope one day that we will find out what causes ME and how we might be able to fix it. No mai hairumai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Claire Kincannon Aho. Now this week, we meet a lab full of researchers who are deeply and personally invested in their topic. And they're determined to do the best science they can, to try to help the people they love. You just heard Anna Blair. And in 2017, Anna moved from her home in Auckland to study at the University of Otago. Last year, she graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree, and she's currently an intern in Warren Tate's lab in the biochemistry department, where she is also hoping to complete her research project for her master's in genetic counselling. Also, Anna has had myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, or ME-CFS, for the last five years. How did it impact you at the start? Um, It was pretty major. I was, before that, really active, um, you know, school, and then I also did competitive karate, so I would train, you know, most days of the week for a couple of hours, And I just couldn't do that anymore. I couldn't attend full days of school. At the very beginning, I couldn't go to school. So that was quite hard because it's sort of, I had to give up some of the things that I really loved. Um, Yeah, it was a lot of sleeping and sort of unanswered questions because at the start, I wasn't diagnosed with ME. It was post-viral fatigue. So... I didn't really know what was going on. There was no, like, blood test that could tell me what I had. So it was just sort of a wait and see, rule everything else out. And then eventually I got diagnosed with ME. And that's standard, right, that it's six months before you get a diagnosis. And as you say, they rule absolutely everything else out first. Yes, yeah, they do. I had a lot of blood tests and, you know, different trips to the doctor and... Yeah, it was pretty hard Um, initially. I think it was just sort of a, why me? Why is this happening? Why is my body so tired? But it's something that I sort of came to terms with after a while. And now I'm really lucky. I'm sort of, I can function way more than I could in in my first sort of year or so of having it. I can actually study and, um, you know, be able to come into the lab and stuff, but not as much as as your average person. I think I, I usually say... For me, my operating at 100% is your average person's like 65, 70%, and that's like a good day. But I think 
for me, one of the best things is having supportive people around me. So I never have to feel like I'm, you know, letting anyone down or anything. And it's actually just taking that time to rest and recover is really important. As Anna and I were discussing, there is currently no clear specific diagnostic marker of the disease. So there's no easy test that you can take to say, oh, yeah, you definitely have ME-CFS. And the symptoms vary too. It's not just fatigue. People can have muscle, headache, and joint pain. They can have severe light and noise sensitivity. They can suffer from brain fog or concentration and cognition problems. They can have abdominal issues. The list goes on. Actually, here I'd love to get into the naughty details of the background of ME-CFS, but to do so would take hours. There are accusations of medical misogyny and of scientific and medical gaslighting of patients. The history also includes a hotly disputed clinical trial in the UK. And this led to treatment guidelines that many think were not just unhelpful, but actually really damaging to patients. All because the cause of this multi-system chronic disease is not fully understood which has led people at different times to speculate that it is psychosomatic. That is, real symptoms, but coming from a psychological rather than a biological basis. For example, the combined name of ME-CFS itself comes from two different viral outbreaks, which resulted in patients exhibiting a similar range of pain and fatigue symptoms, but both of which were at some stage put down to mass hysteria. Warren Tate, the principal investigator of this biochemistry lab group, explains. The name ME, myalgic encephalomyelitis, came about with the Royal Free Hospital epidemic in 1955 in London. The people that were affected in the hospital had an ongoing disease and clinically it was recognised there was a lot of pain, so the myalgia and uh, that it seemed to involve the brain and so the encephala and inflammation itis. So uh, ME came from that. And then in America in 1986, there was a village in Nevada, Incline Village, where the two GPs suddenly started finding hordes of patients from the village coming to see them with, with severe fatigue. And so although they got the CDC over to investigate this and they thought it was just mass hysteria at the time, chronic fatigue syndrome sort of developed in America from that. So that had been the name in the United States for a long period of time, whereas in the United Kingdom it was ME. And so gradually the two names came together and it's been accepted now, I think, internationally. The best way of referring to it is using the two. Now in New Zealand, ME-CFS is sometimes colloquially referred to as Tapanui flu because of an outbreak that occurred in 1984 in the Tapanui area in Otago. People reported prolonged fatigue and other symptoms, such as joint pain and headaches, and an unidentified virus was attributed as the likely cause. And while viruses are not the only thing that can cause ME-CFS, an initial viral infection is definitely part of the historical pattern. So since the 1930s, there have been 75 examples reported of what we think of viral infections that have led to this 
ongoing disease. Uh, the first one since I've been born in 1946 was in Northern Iceland, where a thousand, just over a thousand people over two years came down with a what appeared to be a viral illness, and it had ongoing effects. And in 40 years after that, in 1986, the researchers went back to try and find these people to see you know, how they were doing, and 80% of them still had their ongoing disease. So what we're seeing is often the external trigger is then a viral infection. And in, today in the community, we have glandular fever quite commonly just grumbling away in the community. And so quite a lot of cases uh, develop from people with glandular fever, and that was the case with my daughter. She had glandular fever at age 13, quite a severe illness from it, and then a month or two later her health spiralled down dramatically into what we now know as ME-CFS. Glandular fever is so common. Why then do some people develop ME-CFS and others don't? Warren explained to me that the current thinking is that there is an inherited genetic predisposition. But to date, studies into this haven't been conclusive. And so it's likely that the genetic contributions are many, varied and complex. And will take a while to figure out. Uh, here we go. Hello. So, so this is clear. And now, when I visited, the focus of the lab was on two research questions, which were building on findings that Warren and his team published last December. In those studies, they took blood samples from a group of 10 ME-CFS patients and from age and gender match controls. Then they honed in on a type of immune cell in the blood, and from these immune cells, they extracted DNA and proteins. And then with the help of their collaborators, they discovered two important findings. So number one, they found differences in DNA methylation between ME-CFS people versus controls. So quick explanation here. A methyl group is just a little molecule and they get added on to our DNA to give an extra level of control of which genes from our DNA get read. So scientists call the adding of this methyl group DNA methylation, and they call the extra level of gene control the epigenetic code. So what does this mean? Well, it means that this level of gene control in ME-CFS patients is disrupted. Some genes might be switched on or off when they shouldn't be. And secondly they found differences between the amounts of certain proteins in the cells of ME-CFS patients compared to healthy controls. So they looked across all of the proteins in these cells and they saw that some proteins were there in greater amounts and some were there in lesser amounts. And some of the proteins they identified being kind of out of balance are involved in the mitochondria, known as the energy providers or powerhouses of the cell. What we discovered was that, you know, normally when with a cell organelle like the mitochondria where it contains important proteins doing an important job, they're made in very carefully balanced amounts. And what we found was that the mitochondrial proteins that were involved in energy production, they were made in 
mainly higher amounts, sometimes lower amounts. In other words, the careful balance in their production, like the, you know, the cellular factory which makes all of the, the proteins, it was all disorganised. Certainly that does lead to some dysfunction, but also it leads to what now thought of as damaged mitochondria, and we think that and, and, and there's a growing sort of international feeling that mitochondria are more than just factories to make energy, that they're, they signal danger to the body if they're damaged. And we think that an MECFS, actually the mitochondria, might also be signalling that the body is in a dangerous situation. And then one of the consequences uh, in MECFS we now know is that there's a bit of a shutdown of metabolism so that a lot of the pathways that normally are very active, that enable us to function as, you know, healthy, energetic human beings, uh, operating on a much lower level in people with MECFS, and we've, we've got evidence of that, and there was a, a study out of Stanford uh, just from looking at the plasma metabolites, you know, the waste material, if you like, in plasma showing that it was low in a lot of things, and they could derive that at, tw- at least 20 biochemical pathways w- must be operating at a lower level. So the idea of, of what the mitochondrial proteins, this disarray of their synthesis, if you like, it might be more than just energy production. So, um, you know, that's kind of the ideas that we're pursuing a little bit at the moment. Okay. And this is the general hypothesis that perhaps in MECFS patients, there is some kind of signaling throughout the body that, as you say, says we're in danger and so things are just operating at a lower level. It's essentially in sleep mode rather than full go mode. Yeah, we published a paper, a model for MECFS based on neuroinflammation in the brain and the hypothalamus and this paraventricular nucleus which is the stress centre, and that could explain why ME people don't resolve their illness because if there's constant neuroinflammation which is cycling, then this danger response is there all of the time. So mm-hmm. the body stays in this shutdown state because it senses the danger hasn't gone away. Say I get glandular fever, my body goes danger, danger, and all of the systems kick off, and maybe I'm exhausted you know my immune system gets into gear and maybe I'm exhausted and sensitive to light and if I do any activity I'm wiped afterwards but then I recover and the system resets and my body goes back up to the regular energy production and go production and my immune system quietens down but the theory is that in MECFS patients that signal never gets reset and so their constant signal of we're in danger, we're in That's danger. Right. And, and it's the same, we think, now with long COVID. I mean, p- people that have had an infection, not even seriously, you know, subsequently spiral down to into a more severe condition and it's ongoing. And that seems to be the same thing that's sort of happening. So this is one of the things that the Tate Lab are currently investigating. Tina Edgar, the lab technician, is working on this. So I wander down the hall from Warren's office and into the lab to catch up with her. 
And it actually brings me right back to my PhD days. Like there's pipettes and pipette tip boxes and carefully labeled glass bottles filled with liquid and like little plastic tubes and a vortex to mix things. Anyway, Tina has worked in the Tate Lab for more than 30 years. And while she might humbly downplay her role, she's a valuable part of the research team. So I'm a technician, so I, I do a lot of the donkey work and, yeah, and help when new students come in. My role is to help them settle in and, you know, um, hopefully I can give them some expertise if I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And how long have you been working on experiments related to MECFS? Uh, that would be, gosh, four or five years now, I think, yeah. Day to day in terms of the lab work... What does that involve? Varies a lot. I mean, at the moment, there's been a lot of blood processing. So, you know, getting the blood in and then processing it and getting it all stored away appropriately. And then at the moment, I'm doing DNA extractions and uh, protein extractions that, you know, we're going to use further on in the studies. So, yeah. This blood processing that Tina is working on is related to the long COVID study. So they identified five patients that they actually recruited from the Long COVID Group Facebook page. And so alongside these five Long COVID patients, they have five age and gender matched MECFS patients and five healthy controls. And so while this is another small study, yet again, the match controls and how they have been diagnosed are critically important. What we're trying to see is which group are the long COVID going to fall into? Are they going to fall into the ME group, which I guess is what our thoughts are, but you need those so-called normal controls to see, you know, do they look more like just normal controls? And the patients that you've recruited in terms of long COVID, Mm -hmm. how long have they...? Uh, At least six months, yes, because... ME, it has to be at least six months before you get a diagnosis because you do all that process of elimination from other diseases and things. And so, yeah, most of these ones have had it for quite a while, yeah. Okay. And they have similar symptoms to patients with ME? Very. Um, And that's, that's why it's interesting. Like, they've got the brain fog, they've got the fatigue, they've got the aches and pains. The difference is probably their lung has come into it as well, which is, you know, a difference with this virus, I guess. But other than that, they seem pretty similar, which I guess is what sparked the interest in, you know, are they ME-like? And so this is your lab bench, which is yeah. looking <laughs> looking very messy, isn't it? <laughs> well, uh, no, I mean, it's, it's looking productive. Yeah, You're yeah, I was, I was just doing some um, protein extractions. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you've said you, you get the blood, you process the blood, and then you're extracting DNA and protein. And protein at the moment, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then once those extractions are finished, what's the next step? So there's going to be a, a DNA methylation study, which is Gemma's sort of the expert on that now, so she'll give you the brief on that. And then there's going to be a proteome study done uh, down the hall um, with Torsten and yeah and we've got studies of these from our ME patients and so we're 
kind of looking for the same sort of patterns coming out with these long COVIDs as well. Okay, these are the studies that were published last December? Yes, yes, yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so the big question is, do you see the same patterns of DNA methylation and Um, protein? Yes, exactly, yep. I leave Tina to her lab work and head to the writer room to chat to Gemma Ellie from Onofero. Gemma will also be analysing DNA and proteins extracted from patients' blood, looking for those changes in DNA methylation and those levels of proteins. But to address a different question. I did my undergrad degree in the molecular basis of health and disease. And so... I'm doing my honours project on post-exertional malaise and chronic fatigue syndrome, or ME. Um, Yeah, and whether the epigenetics and other molecular changes occur during the post-exertional malaise response. The post-exertional malaise response is a specific term for something that ME-CFS patients experience. So Anna, the intern in the lab, whom you heard at the start, was actually one of the participants in this experiment. And she explains what this term means. So it's basically when you engage in some form of exercise and it just affects you probably more than the average person. Like, it makes you really tired and you can't really go back and do the same thing the next day to the same level. I was part of a post-exertional malaise study and it involved... um, I think it was about 15 minutes on a stationary bike and that increased the load every couple of minutes or so. Um, And then we had to go back the next day and do the same thing and they just compared our efforts. And it was was quite hard. I was really tired after the the first day Um, and then after the second day it actually took me, it ended up taking me about two and a half weeks to recover. So I was, you know, very tired having to sleep all the time and um, getting really sore muscles. Like more than just, you know, that that nice post-gym, you know, pain that's like, oh, I've done something. It's like, oh, it hurts to walk up the stairs and everything feels sore for, you know, no reason. It's almost like you feel kind of weighted down and, and it's more like pain than, yeah, that, that nice kind of exercise soreness after it's, yeah, it's... It's it's way different, sort of having experienced both, I think. It'd be quite hard to imagine if you've never experienced it before. So with this experiment, participants have had their blood taken before and after both bouts of exercise. So following the DNA and protein extractions and sending of samples for analysis, Gemma will investigate whether any molecular changes occur as the patients are experiencing this post-exertional malaise response. I asked her why our experiment focuses on looking for these molecular changes during the post-exertional malaise response in particular. A couple of reasons. It's one of the key um, distinguishing features between individuals that have MECFS and other people that might have other fatigue-related conditions such as multiple sclerosis. But also it could hold a really cool potential for diagnostics. So if we can find out what molecular changes are actually occurring during this response, we can target those changes. Still very new, but yeah. The studies are quite small, right? How many, remind me how many patients are in the study? So in this study, we have five patients and two controls. And 
One of the main reasons why that is is because obviously a lot of people with MSFS vary in terms of symptom extremity and you know it's a really intensive study as Anna said it took her like two and a half weeks to recover and people that might have lower than 65% of like functioning and they're house ridden or bed ridden you know that's not an option for them to participate and it's hard because some of the advice from other researchers in other fields are like yeah we need to do these big global studies with thousands of um, patients and stuff but it's like how do we balance getting sufficient quality data that will really benefit patients in the future and also minimising the pain and suffering of individuals? Yeah. That's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Gemma is acutely tuned into this dilemma because, like Anna, like Warren, she also has a deeply personal connection to this research work. Yeah, so my father actually has ME-CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome. So I grew up, you know, experiencing it. Um, and it's really funny being here, like, hearing clinicians like Rosamond Vellings, like, I grew up hearing that name, so it's really strange. And it's hard <laughs> because I've experienced the severity of it and how it can really affect families. Um and what your sense of normalcy is. And obviously my dad, being of an older generation, he experienced a lot of um, minimisation of his disease. He's been told that he's had heart cancer and all of those kinds of things, and he's been told that it's all in his head. Um, Yeah, to be studying it and to actually research, you know, I know there's a biochemical basis. I know that there's, you know, an actual physiological basis to it and having that connection, it's really funny because my dad trained as a vet and so he understands science and so I, you know, send him papers that I find interesting for him to read. So, yeah, it's, it's cool. A World Health Organization policy brief published earlier this year says that one in 10 people who get COVID-19 are still unwell after three months. The similarity in the symptoms has resulted in a greater awareness worldwide of ME-CFS. But these researchers know what the cost of that might be for the people affected. I mean, it's terrible that there are so many people now having... um this huge influx of people with MECFS symptoms and you know I, I know how that can be and it's really life-changing and I know that there's people who have it worse than me um, and I'm really lucky so yeah I'm just I think in some ways there is also not necessarily a good side but the the recognition of the disease um, is really positive because you know, we can have more research, we can have more um, healthcare providers aware of it and how to support them and, and just the general public have more knowledge and how to support people with the disease, which is really positive. Um, but it's a shame that it's had to come at the expense of people's well-being rather than just a general interest in the disease as a whole. As Anna said at the very start, science is difficult and the body is confusing. And this is an unprecedented time for the ME-CFS community. 
Long COVID patient numbers are likely to rise in the coming months worldwide. And increases in funding, research and recognition are likely to bring benefits for MECFS sufferers too. Warren looks to the future with cautious hope for this community, including his daughter and the people who work alongside him. At the very least, I would hope that we could find outcomes that would enable people with MECFS to be able to manage their illness so that they have a, a better lifestyle. I mean, if, if that occurred, then I think that would be a huge thing. Obviously, one could easily say, well, we want to cure the illness. We do, but, you know, more realistically, I think, is, is getting a much better life for those people that are, that are suffering now and many people that have really been almost like a forgotten people, you know, in our society, 20,000 in New Zealand, uh, so it's not insignificant. Yeah, and, I mean, from a research point of view, I just hope that we can contribute uh, still more towards that process. It's amazing, despite, you know, the frustration among the MECFS community, there are amazing people working within it. Uh, Dr. Rosamond Vallings in Auckland, you know, is an amazing clinician. You know, she does enormous work in the country supporting uh, uh, people and also training GPs. And then finding, you know, researchers like I have in my group that are willing to kind of put their heart and soul into actually trying to make a difference. I think that's very inspiring to me. So, um, you know, I've always been an optimistic researcher and person in a way and so I think you have to be to work in this illness as well but you know I am optimistic that the future will be better. Thank you to Anna, Warren, Tina and Gemma for talking to me about their research and their lives. Thanks also to Kieran Warden who helped with research for this episode. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon. Sound engineering was by Phil Benj. Tim Watkin is the executive producer. You can follow the Our Changing World podcast on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, look for the other RNZ podcasts too. I can highly recommend Getting Better, a year in the life of a Maori medical student. Trainee doctor Emma Espiner brings us along her journey in a seven-episode series that won the 2021 Voyager Best Serial Podcast Award. It is a truly engaging and thought-provoking series. And you can find all of the previous Our Changing World episodes on our webpage, rnz.co.nz forward slash Our Changing World. I'll also put up some photos and a bunch of links related to this story if you want to find out more. If you're on Facebook or Twitter, you can get in touch with us. We are at RNZ Science. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon, and I'll be back next week. Kia pai to wiki. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. 
You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.